And now it's time for us to open the Word of God. We are going to be in the 67th Psalm this evening. And as you are turning the pages of the Bible toward the 67th Psalm, let me begin by observing that this conference is really a conference about dispensationalism. And within dispensationalism, there are many issues and there are many theological niceties that distinguish dispensationalism from other systems of thought. One of the most important is this. In their understanding of what God is doing in creation and what God is doing in history, dispensationalists affirm that God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself in every way possible. Now, there are other systems of thought that also believe that God's ultimate purpose is to glorify himself, but they tend to narrow the focus of God's self-glorification to what is sometimes called salvation history, so that God is glorified primarily through the saving of souls. Dispensationalists, however, broaden out the categories and insist that everything that God is doing in the universe, even if it is not directly related to the saving of souls, is about God getting glory. Now please understand, when we say that God glorifies himself, that does not mean that God makes himself more glorious than he already is. That would not be possible. He is already infinitely glorious. His splendor surpasses our understanding and it goes beyond our ability to describe. He is the most fascinating, interesting person in the universe. He is beautiful in his holiness. He is radiant in his majesty. He transcends our ability to praise him. God could not make himself more glorious than he already is. So when we say that God is going to glorify himself, what do we mean? What we mean is this. God wishes to cause his excellence to be more widely recognized so that all of his creatures can respond to him with admiration. Now, we like to be admired, don't we? Be honest, we like to be admired. We would like to be glorified ourselves. And when it comes to that yearning to be admired, we say that that is sinful. Why is it that what is so sinful for us is not at all sinful for God? The answer is that we have within ourselves nothing worthy of admiration. The only things that we have that are worth admiring are things that have been given to us as sheer gifts. And so if anyone wants to admire anything... Don't let them admire the gifts that we hold in our hands. Let them admire the one who could give such majestic gifts. But when it comes to God, 
he never received anything. No one ever contributed anything to him. He is infinitely majestic in his own being. He is self-existent, eternal, immortal, invisible. And he deserves all of the praise and honor and glory that we could ever give to him. In fact, God's greatest occupation is and must be to admire himself because he is the most admirable thing that exists. And so when God invites us to adore him, when he invites us to praise him, when he invites us to worship him, he is inviting us to do the most important thing that, could, that we ever could do or that ever could be done. To give glory to God is what we were made for. To give glory to God is what we were saved for. To give glory to God is what we live for. So how is God bringing glory to himself. Are you in the 67th Psalm? Follow along, please, as I read it aloud. You watch silently in your version of the scriptures. I'm going to be reading out of the old King James here. To the chief musician on Neginot, a psalm or song. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. In this short psalm, the psalmist is articulating three ways in which God brings glory to himself. And I want to look at these three ways that God is making his glory known throughout his creation so that we may respond to him in admiration and praise. I'm going to look at the very beginning of the psalm to see one way that God glorifies himself. At the very end of the psalm to, to see a second and related way in which God glorifies himself. And then I want to spend the bulk of our time on the large middle section of the psalm, which is going to get us into a hot topic for dispensationalism. In other words, I also have an ulterior agenda this evening. I want to see God glorified but I also want to see you become more intelligent dispensationalists. So, wake up. How is God glorifying himself? First of all, God is glorifying himself, or God will glorify himself when his blessing flows through Israel 
to all nations. Look back at verses 1 and 2. The first verse, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Do those words sound at all familiar to you? Do they sound like something that you read somewhere else in Scripture? Well, they are. At the end of uh, Numbers chapter 6, God is giving instructions to Aaron and his sons and telling them, here is how you are to bless the children of Israel. You are to pronounce my name over them, and you are to call for these kinds of blessings. And when you pronounce my name over them, I will bless Israel. Here, the psalmist is picking up and paraphrasing the ironic blessing, only instead of saying, may God bless you and keep you, he is saying, God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. He is praying for the promised blessing upon Israel. This psalm is an Israel-focused psalm. And that's important. Because when you get to verse 2, you discover that the reason the psalmist wants God to bless Israel is so that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. In other words, when God blesses Israel, all the earth is blessed. And if God withholds his blessing from Israel, then God withholds a blessing that affects all the peoples of the earth. Genesis chapter 12 tells us that through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You understand, when God called Abraham and promised Abraham a land and a seed and a blessing, and when God reiterated that promise, to Isaac, and God reiterated that promise to Jacob and then renamed him Israel. And then God faithfully brought his people Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and delivered them through the mediation of Moses. When God did those things and constituted Israel as his people, it was not so that Israel could exercise a hegemony over the blessings of God. God wanted to bless Israel, to be sure. But most of all, God wanted Israel to be his vehicle, his channel, his conduit of blessing to the entire earth so that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And until the sons of Abraham enjoy the promised blessing... The earth is going to be lacking something that it needs. By the way, this is one reason that we need a millennium. The millennium is all about God fulfilling his promise to Abraham and through Israel blessing the entire earth. And when God does that, when God finally keeps this promise to Abraham, then all the nations are going to rejoice. All the nations are going to see God's majesty and his glory. They will understand his faithfulness. They will marvel at his wisdom, and they will lift up their voices in praise, and God will be glorified. Go to the end of the psalm. When does God, how does God intend to glorify himself? The last two verses. 
Then shall the earth yield her increase, and God, even our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. God will glorify himself by someday restoring the created order. Then, says the psalmist, will the earth yield her increase. Now, on a small scale, of course, we see this in the history of Israel. When Israel obeys God, there tends to be blessing upon the crops. When Israel disobeys God, there tends to be famine. But in the long run, the fulfillment of this passage occurs again in the millennium. Please understand, if God doesn't redeem the created order, then Satan wins. God must redeem creation itself. It's our sin that brought the curse upon the created order. It's the sacrifice of Christ that eventually will reverse the curse upon the created order, and all creation will bring forth as bountifully as it did in the Garden of Eden. That is God's ultimate plan. And it occurs at the very same time when God blesses Israel. God blesses Israel and God blesses the earth. The two go hand in hand. And when God does that, then all the nations of the earth will rejoice. And everyone will bless God. And God will get glory. Now I want you to go back to the middle section of the psalm. How does God intend to glorify himself? To me, the middle section of this psalm is one of the most fascinating passages anywhere in the word of God. I'm going to read it again, and I'm, I'm reading out of an old King James. I mentioned that a moment ago. If you've got a more recent translation, chances are that your translation reflects a change that I'm going to make as I read the text here. I'm going to begin reading. In verse 3, let the peoples, not just the people, one, but the peoples, it's a plural, praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the peoples righteously and govern the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples Praise thee. How does God intend to glorify himself? Here's the answer. God will be glorified when he receives praise from all the peoples. Now, here I have to draw a distinction between people and people. Okay? All of us in the room this evening were people, but we are not a people in the sense in which the psalmist is using that term here. I want to talk to you for a while about what it means to be a people. And by the way, this gets to the outline that I believe is printed in your notes. If any of you have been wondering, are we going to use this at all? The answer is, I don't do so well with notes, whether, whether I've got them in front of me or whether I've distributed them to somebody else. So... I'll do the best I can if you'll do the best you can, okay? There's a difference between people in the sense of folks and 
a people. And I want to spend some time talking, number one, about what is a people. And then I want to ask, what is a people of God? And then I want to ask, what does God want with his people or peoples? Let's talk first about the question, what is a people? In this particular psalm, the psalmist is using three Hebrew terms virtually interchangeably. The first term is goyim, which is a term that is sometimes translated Gentiles, but actually it simply means nations. The second term is amim, which means peoples. And the third term is lumim, which means peoples or nations. Now, you don't need to remember the Hebrew terms. Just remember there are three terms, and the writer is using them virtually interchangeably in this particular psalm. As a matter of fact, that's not an uncommon phenomenon in the Bible. These three words frequently go back and forth within the same context. Do you mind letting your fingers do the walking for a while? I know as you get older, you get tired of having to look at a lot of different texts because arthritis sets in and it's more difficult to manipulate the pages. But if you can tolerate it this evening, there are a number of texts that will be worth our looking at. Go for a moment to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. This is the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau. I want you to look at verse 22. It says, The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And I want you to see here what the Lord says. Verse 23, The Lord said unto her, Two nations are in your womb. That's an odd way of thinking about it, isn't it? Two nations are in your womb? Gals, how'd you like that? (laughs) And of course, what the Lord means is that these two children who are in your womb are going to be fathers, each of whom will produce eventually a nation each. So they stand as the head or the beginning of two nations. Two nations, goyim, are in your womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people. Okay, so you have goyim, nations, you have amim, people, and the idea here is that each of of Esau and Jacob is going to become a nation, which is to say that each of them is going to become a people. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the relationship between being a nation and being a people? What would you guess? Well, if you're guessing correctly, you might guess they must be the same thing. And you would be correct. Look a little further back in Genesis at Genesis chapter 10. 
In Genesis 10, you have one of those long genealogies that are so frequent in the book of Genesis. As you get down near the end of the chapter, you discover why this genealogy is being given. Verse 31 says, after the last section of the genealogy, these are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues, in their lands, after their nations. And then, verse 32, 31 summarizes the family of Shem. Verse 32 summarizes the whole chapter. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations, in their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Here, the term family is being used interchangeably with the word nation. A people is a nation. A family is a nation. Do you begin to get the idea of what a biblical nation must be? A biblical nation is a people united by a common ancestry. That is to say, in the Bible, to be a people or a nation virtually always has some kind of an ethnic component to it. To be a people or to be a nation is to be descended from a particular parent. Now, there's a little more to it than that. Not only is to be a nation or a people to be a family, it is also, according to verse 31, to share a tongue, to share perhaps a land. There's probably a cultural element that enters into it. But the common uniting factor of being a nation, a biblical nation, is a matter of descent, it's a matter of ethnicity, it's a matter of who your papa is. Most of the world still thinks in these categories. We don't. When, when we think of a nation, what we're thinking of is a government or a state. And that's natural for us in America because we come from all sorts of different ethnicities. We're, we're all mixed together here. Um, if, if you were to ask me, you know, what's your ethnicity, I could say broadly North European, but if I had to parse that, there's, there's some Anglo-Saxon in there, there's some Celtic in there, there, there's a bunch of stuff in there that would prevent me from coming down in any one nation as the biblical term is being used. Most of the world doesn't think that way. For example, our seminary, Central Baptist Theological Seminary, has a campus in Plymouth, Minnesota. We also have a campus in Arad, Romania, which is Western Romania, actually Transylvania. When I was growing up, I never thought that I would someday get the opportunity to preach the gospel in Transylvania. Wow, what God has done. One of the things we learned going to do work in Romania is that not everybody who is born and lives in Romania is a Romanian. There are Hungarians who are born in Romania and live in Romania all their lives. Their identity remains Hungarian. There are gypsies who are born in Romania and live in Romania all their lives. In fact, there are more gypsies in Romania than in any other country in the world but their identity remains gypsy. You see, in, in the European mind, Romania isn't a political entity so much as it is an ethnicity. So if you ask somebody on the street, what are you? If he's a Hungarian by ethnicity or a gypsy by ethnicity, he won't name the country of which he is a citizen, he will name his ethnicity. That's the way that most of the world thinks. 
And those are the terms in which the Bible uses, or that's the idea behind the biblical concept of a nation or a people. It is essentially an ethnic unit. So, when we talk about the nation of Moab, well, we can identify Moab as the people who are descended from Lot through Moab. Or if we talk about the nation of Ammon, we can identify those as the people who are descended from Lot through Ben-Ami. Every nation has its particular father. It is an ethnic unit. And the nation of Israel is, of course, the nation that is descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You understand what a people is? When we talk about a biblical people, we are talking about a group, a social group, which has a common ancestor, has a common culture, speaks a common language, and may or may not be identified with a particular piece of real estate. Now, if you're thinking, one question that ought to come to your mind is this. How do you get into a people that you weren't born in? Does that ever happen? And the answer is yes, it does, biblically. Think of Rahab. Of what people, into what people, was Rahab born? Well, she was born as a Canaanite. Into what people did she come? Well, she came into Israel. How did that happen? First of all, there was a change in her allegiance in terms of the God that she worshipped. Then there was an identification with the nation of Israel and eventually a marriage into Israel. You think of Ruth. Ruth was born a Moabitess. And yet, as she identifies with Naomi and Naomi's God, and then marries an Israelite man, Boaz. She comes into the biblical nation of Israel. There were ways to move from one one nation to another, but it wasn't just something that you did on a whim. It was a complicated process. There were ways you could do it. The fact remains that a biblical nation is essentially an ethnic unit. Now, that leads to this question. What does it mean to be a people of God? Okay, we've talked about what it means to be a people. Israel is a people. Moab is a people. Ammon is a people. Egypt is a people. Assyria is a people. Babylon is a people. All of those are different peoples within the biblical world. They are all different nations within the biblical world. What does it mean to be a people of God? Well, to answer that question, I want to take you to another text that deals not with the past, but with the future. Look, if you will, at Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19 is, I think, one of the most fascinating and perplexing and suggestive scriptures that you can find anywhere. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. There's so much here that ought to be said, but I want to focus on this in particular. Verse 19, in that day, and I'll I'll let you figure out which day he's talking about, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. 
And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry out unto the Lord because of the oppressors. And he shall send them a savior and a great one. And he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt. And the the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. And shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. And the Lord shall smite Egypt. He shall smite and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. Do you understand what Isaiah is saying here? Right now, we think of Israel and Egypt more or less as enemies, and historically, for thousands of years, they have been. Isaiah is saying, there's coming a day when I will smite Egypt. I'm going to send an oppressor against Egypt. And when Egypt is oppressed, Egypt is going to repent and they will cry out to the Lord and I will send them a savior who will deliver them. And Egypt, says the Lord, is going to turn to me. They're going to worship me. Talk about revival. Verse 23, in that day, if that's not astonishing enough, in that day, There shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Now, what's the relationship between Israel and Assyria? It's not better than the relationship between Israel and Egypt, is it? Assyria is the bitterest of all the enemies that Israel has ever had. Assyria is the worst of the worst of the worst. Here, God says there will be a highway. It will go out of Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. And that word for serve means serve the Lord. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying, look at this, look at this. Blessed be Egypt. What are the next words? My people. And Assyria, the work of my hands. And Israel, mine inheritance. The first time that I understood what this verse was saying, I almost couldn't believe it. I am so used to thinking Israel is the people of God. And then it hit me. Egypt is going to be the people of God. And Assyria is going to be the people of God. Well, does that mean that somehow Egypt and Assyria are going to be absorbed into Israel? No. It means that there will be Egypt and there will be Assyria and in the middle will be Israel. Those three together as the peoples of God. So what does it mean to be a people of God? Well, in this passage, I notice certain characteristics about Egypt as a people of God and Assyria as a people of God and Israel as a people of God. To be a people of God means in the first place to worship God. They're going to offer sacrifices in Egypt. They're going to make oblations. They're going to swear vows to the Lord, and they're going to keep them. There will be an altar in Egypt. There will be a pillar marking the boundary of Egypt to the Lord. Egypt will turn and worship the Lord God. 
It means that if you're a people of God, you depend upon God. Because when the oppressor comes, Egypt doesn't cry to Allah. Egypt cries, oh, Yahweh! And Yahweh hears and answers in a way that Allah never will be able to. Egypt transfers their dependence to Yahweh God. To be a people of God, according to this text, means that you know God. And that you are known by God. According to this text, to be a people of God means that you are being blessed by God. And more than that, it means that you have become a channel of blessing. You see, these these three together not only receive the Lord's blessing, but they are a blessing in the midst of the land. Now, if you haven't guessed yet, we've got to be talking millennium here. It's going to take a millennium to do this. But during the millennium, Israel will be God's people. Egypt will be God's people. And Assyria, okay, let's put a label on it. Iraq will be God's people. They will be God's people. They will worship him. They will cry out to him. They will know him. He will bless them. He will know them. And he will make them a channel through which his blessing flows to all the earth. That's what it means to be a people of God. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk specifically about what it means that Israel is a people of God. And the night after that, we're going to talk specifically about what it means that the church is a people of God. But we can begin to ask ourselves this question now. If we as the church are a people of God, then what does God want? with his peoples, all of them, including us. What does God want with Israel? What does God want with Egypt? What does God want with Assyria? What does God want with we, the church of Jesus Christ? The answer is, number one, he wants us to know him and to love him. He wants us to admire him and to praise him and to bless him. According to Zechariah 14, in the millennium, every nation on earth will come to Jerusalem to bless God and to praise him. And if they don't, God says, I won't send them any rain until they do. Evidently, God doesn't want just Israel and Egypt and Assyria and the church to be his people. By by the way, if you're thinking, you ought to be asking yourself this question. You ought to be saying, wait a minute. If a people is an ethnic block, how can the church ever be a people? Good question. I'm glad you asked, but I'm not going to answer it tonight. (laughs) Apparently, God wants more than just four peoples in the millennium. Every nation on earth will be his people. When Jesus Christ rules and reigns, he rules and reigns over all the nations. They're all his people. And he wants them all to know him, 
to love him, to admire him, to praise him, to call out to him. What else does God want with his people? God wants to bless them. From the very beginning of this book until the very end, it is God's unified purpose to demonstrate the glory of his grace and mercy by showering blessing upon the ill-deserving. God wants to bless us. So what, what, what should we be doing? Well, we should be loving him, admiring him, praising him, knowing him. And we should be opening up our arms and saying, Lord, that blessing that you've got, we're ready for it. Pour it out upon us. And I believe he will, even this week. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to the day when you will bless the entire earth, when Jesus Christ rules and reigns upon the throne in Jerusalem. In the meanwhile, we do open ourselves to the blessings that you have for us here and now. We realize that many times your blessings come in secret packages. They look like sufferings and afflictions. But your purpose is to bless. And we trust you. We trust you to bless. And because we trust you, we rejoice in you, our God. We give you glory and praise because if you didn't spare your son but freely gave him for us, you will not withhold any good thing from us. Lord, I pray for these meetings this week. I pray that your people will be encouraged and that they will be uplifted. I pray that we'll be, they will be drawn near to you. Most of all, I pray that you will help us to understand in a new and fresh way who you are, what you are doing, what your plan is, and how glorious you are. In Jesus' name, amen.